The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 75 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Still wondering how my wizard costume contest entry of the decomposing corpse of Uncle Ben didn't win the grand prize in 1997. I'm Adam. And soon to be with us? Possibly? Maybe? Who knows? Michael Canetti, uh, somewhere in the universe and trying to make his way onto the mic. But I will tell you that joining us to Night is a man who may have read a comic book or two in his time, and I will say dared to do what Wizard could not, which is kind of make the jump from pop culture, print-based magazines and things of that nature to online fame and fortune uh, from the internet's last comedy website, 1-900-HOT-DOG, and its companion Dog Zone 9000 podcast. It's Robert Brockway. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, I don't know that I've necessarily beaten wizard in terms of like success yet it's always the goal of course is to is to shame them completely with my resounding success still working on it though shame the shameless <laughs> Now, I will tell you, he does have a partner in crime, a gentleman that many of you may have heard of. If you have, you know, looked for comedy anywhere in life uh, over the last 30 years, and that is a gentleman named Sean Baby. Brockway, you want to give him the heads up why Sean couldn't join us tonight? Well, he has a newborn child, like very newborn. Yeah. And uh, as we all know, that is just, uh, I was telling you earlier, it's a blessing from the chaos gods. Like it, it is just a way to drop some whimsy. And certainly a lot of trouble into your life. Absolutely. So hopefully down the line, we have the, the team joining us together. But Rockway, you're no slouch. And I have to ask, you know, <laughs> as an aspiring writer of comedic nonsense in your life, did you ever dream of writing for Wizard Magazine? Or were your sights always set on the glamorous digital halls of Cracked.com? I'm a, I'm a bad fan is what I am. I've <laughs> always been such a bad fan. I bought, like every nerd in the 90s, I bought Wizard all the time. I didn't have a subscription, but I would just buy if it had a cool picture on it. You know, I'd buy it and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn about comic books because I read comic books for sure. But it would always just, it, and it's still to this day, just goes right out my brain when you start talking about the people that make it. And following like the behind the scenes and the politics of it, how the businesses are doing, I was never able to give a goddamn and I just couldn't. <laughs> so I'd, I'd buy a wizard and I'd read like one article from it and then I'd be like, I don't like this. <laughs> <And> put it away. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't dream of writing for wizard. I might have dreamed of like making them better or making a magazine that I wanted to read about comic books, which is kind of what cracked was like I got to write the stuff I wanted to write about comic books for Cracked. So in a way it didn't exist yet. But yeah, I dreamed of I dreamed of Cracked, sure. That, what it used to be. 
Well, and, and that leads me kind of to our next question here, because as you may or may not know, over the years, Wizard tried to branch out into magazines covering everything from action figures, science fiction, collectible card games, anime, even Beanie Babies, you know, but none of their publications actually survived into the present day in any form. So I have to ask if you had come around, say, 2011, you know, some of the editorial staff of Wizard is reaching out to you and they're saying, Brockway, our website, our magazine, it's circling the drain. How would you have proposed to save the company? What would have brought in people like Brockway, who only got a few pages in and said, I need more. I need more from Wizard. Kumite? No, uh, <laughs> I think, I don't know. This was this was 2011, you said, yeah. when they were? 2011. I would, uh, realistically, I probably would have advised them to switch to being like a lad mag, to be a, a Maxim ripoff, uh, which was five years too late to do that and why everybody in 2011 failed. That was like the death of all magazines was the last hurrah was let's try to be Maxim. So I, I probably realistically would have died on that hill. Although looking at the cover, you sent me a scan of this wizard. That's what they were already doing in, oh. in like 97. Yes. Now, let me tell you, Brockwake, because you are right on track. You know what was going on in that world because they actually brought on the editor of Maxim, originally oh, worked at Wizard. <laughs> then he went to work at Maxim. <clears throat> then they brought him back and he turned it into Maxim for pop culture. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what happened to the whole industry. In fact, that's that happened to Cracked before that, before I came on board and Cracked.com. They tried to make... Uh, whoever it was that owned it before uh, Demand Media, which was the corporation that helped us launch the original Crack.com back in 2007, they had a uh, Maxim Light-ish attempt to bring like Cracked back. And that's uh, that's where we got our editor-in-chief, Jack O'Brien, who was you know instrumental to the Cracked.com launch, is that yeah. they brought him on to work on that as like a lad mag. And he was like, this is so bad. I, this is going to do like, I think they did like two issues and then folded, which is what everybody did. Like we're going to become Maxim two issues die. And uh, so, so you did that. And then they were just like somebody in demand bought cracked as like a, as like a trademark thing, but they didn't want to pay attention to it. So they, they just kept Jack on as like one of the, you came with the lad mag folks do, <laughs> do something with the domain. And he's like, do whatever I want with the domain. And they were like, Sure we're not going to pay attention to it. And they didn't, they didn't for like a year. And we, he just, he hired like the three or four of us and we did cracked. And then a year later they were like, so you're like the biggest thing on the internet now. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't yeah. know. But uh, thank God. Thank God. Horny magazine editors <laughs> with one idea. Just thank God for them. They, they invented the modern internet. That's right. I mean, that's the thing. I'm sure many of our listeners right now were reading your work and, and that of your compatriots on crack.com when they should have been working. They were listening to the podcast. I, I loved when Jack would have, you know, Michael Swaim and everybody else on, of course, watching on YouTube, seeing the after hours show. There's so, you know, that was that moment in time, much like Wizard was a moment in time, right? Yeah. You caught it, you had it running on all wheels, then greed and other things gets in the way. But uh, I have to say, on your own Dog Zone 9000 podcast, you and Sean recently roasted both Todd McFarlane and his Wizard of Oz based action figures as well as Frank Miller and well Frank Miller comics so uh we want to hear though like how you first learned about all these quirky comics creators what you remember from the 90s boom like you say not the details necessarily but just the enthusiasm the excitement of discovering comic books so why don't you tell us your origin story
Well, I think I got into comic books just like, you know, like every kid at, at like eight or nine years old, which is by already owning every single issue of John Sable Freelance. Uh, <laughs> that's that's how I got. See, my dad was I, I don't even remember the specifics of it, but my dad was very good friends with Mike Grell, who, who wrote uh who wrote all sorts of things. He wrote Green Arrow. He wrote He wrote, he wrote Shaman's Tears, a comic oh. book that we mock mercilessly on this podcast. So apologies. Wasn't, wasn't going to bring up Shaman's Tears. <laughs> wasn't going to bring up that one. Uh, but yeah, like my first comic books, my dad had a box with like every every issue of the 80s run of John Sable Freelance. And so I'm like, I like I want to like comic books. And I'd start reading John Sable Freelance and be like, this has a lot more butt and death than I... <laughs> Than I would have assumed comic books are, but I guess I'm into it. He paints his face. He's got a gun. It's great. But that was that was legit. Like my introduction. I went to as a kid. I went to Mike Grell's house once with my dad to like to like visit him. And I wanted to be a comic writer for the longest time because of that visit. Because we went there and it was full of. I, I don't want to commit too much because I was like eight or nine years old. So childhood memory conflates these things to be a total exaggerated version. But I remember it being full of exotic art artifacts and like trophy hunted animals. I remember it being like Alan Quartermain's den, you know, just <laughs> just a den of like my record of adventures. And I, I remember it being like, I want to be a comic book writer. Look at all the adventures they go on. <laughs> and I know that's, that's just... amazing. Living the life of his characters, it sounds like. Yeah. The, and <laughs> I remember him being like that, being just like he was John Sable Freelance. And I was like, when we leave here, you're going to paint your face and, and rail a beautiful woman and then kill a spy or something. <laughs> that's that's your life. And we had this, uh, we had a, an original, he used to draw the Tarzan strip. Uh, was in the papers with uh with Edgar Rice Burroughs and we had an original from like the run the original art he had you know dedicated it to my dad and everything and that was uh on the wall of my bedroom for a long time so I was just like Mike Grell is gonna be my hero my absolute hero which is a a very strange way to get into comic books as a young child absolutely so uh, although i mean he did manage to jump on board the image train when it was at its did. hottest yeah and then had that direct connection to todd mcfarlane he had that that todd juice at his just don't uh, don't cut me saying todd juice <laughs> that should not that should not be he had a direct connection to that though right at the shaman's tears was was like Within the year or two of launch, wasn't it? It was like oh, yeah. really, it was like base level. Well, that, was that was kind of the controversy at the time is they started bringing on their favorite creators. Like, hey, yeah, publish titles, but with us and we'll get you distribution. And then they brought on like a new publisher who was over everything. He's like, guys, you're cutting away from your profits and your numbers by promoting these guys. And so they dropped Mike Grell. They dropped all these other people. And he was like so mad at them. And he's like, oh, well, I don't need him, blah, blah, blah. So it was, there was quite a bit of drama around uh, Shaman's Tears eventually getting dropped <laughs> and him having to go back to self-publishing. <laughs> Yeah, but he also brought them Sean's Tears, which should never, even in 97, 98, should never see. Somebody should look at that and be like, but you're the white man, right? Yeah. Right? 
Well, it literally every picture they would show of him in wizard, he was wearing like Native American jewelry. You know, he was like dressing like an indigenous yeah. person. And you're like, oh, Mike, you're you're appropriating here. Let's not do this. <laughs> and as a child of eight or nine, I thought that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so <Apparently. did> he. <laughs> yeah, it's a little less charming at, at 45 or whatever. It's a That's little right. less charming. But, you know, I'm sure that Mike was getting some fan letters delivered. There might have been one or two in the mailbox as you were going over to visit. So we are going to check out now what some of the wizard readers were writing in, the questions they had for the wizard staff. We're going to open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. Tom Jodelka is a gentleman that is winning the Bunny Award this issue. The Bunny Award is the best letter each month. And so this is a, an interesting one. He says here, Dear Jim, since you are the undisputed master of the kidney punch, I was hoping you could give me some advice as to what would be a good follow-up move. Should you deliver another kidney punch, a well-placed atomic elbow, or should you just run like a schoolgirl in hopes that you are faster than your victim? I was also wondering if you guys plan to exact any revenge against the bunny who terrorizes staff members every month with his hammer. Do you plan on taking any legal action against the bunny? Are you going to take care of him with a kidney punch, or are you just going to have the bunny neutered? So it, it should be noted, though, in this issue, the bunny picture has changed from what it has been for a year or so, where he had Thor's hammer in his hand. Now he's got a baseball bat. <laughs> we have uh, Joe Yannarella, one of the head guys over there, having some words with him. We'll put that on social media. We're not going to read it here. <laughs> but, Rockway, on your podcast, you guys have read quite a few self-defense related books and uh, they're giving you techniques they're giving you ideas for how to win a fight so just based on your knowledge based on the things that you've experienced what do you think would be the best follow-up move to a kidney punch this is a sean baby question this <laughs> i see where this came from yes uh, yeah he's the self-defense lunatic guy <laughs> i'm i guess it's kind of applicable i'm i'm more of an expert in in revenge and, and treachery and deceit <laughs> in general. So I don't know. I'd probably, I, I had a move I like to do when I was a kid, which is the last time I got in a fight, where I, uh, I kicked him in the back and then I tried to get him to think somebody else did it. And then while it was, you know, falling out, I would just get the hell out of there and I'll, you know, live to fight another day. I think I'd probably, I mean, if we're following up a kidney punch, we've already attacked the back. I guess you could try to, they would probably bend down. You could, you could try to pants them. That's always a good one. Like you, nobody has a good defense when your dick is out, like by surprise. Yeah. You're just your automatic nervous reaction is to uh, is to bend down to cover that. And I think that's a prime opportunity uh, to attack and destroy the groin, which is which is my advice for a lot of things. It, it seems like also the preferred attack of most chimpanzees, from what I hear. So I, I, that's where I learned it. it yeah. is chimp, <laughs> it's chimpanzee style kung fu. You rip the face and attack the groin. That's right. So, yes, you've learned well. I, I will say we all have those, you know, fight fantasies, especially when we're kids. It's like, what would I do if somebody attacked me? And my move has always been I would go for the break the elbow from the bottom punch up, snap it. It feels like a real, you know, blood sport type move. But at the same time, I don't know if I would have the force to do what I needed to do there. You do Mortal Kombat uppercut. Yeah. Their arm just explodes. That's right. Even flying through, just flying through the gore victorious. 
<laughs> yeah. No, kicking them in the back and running is uh, if we're being realistic. Always add the running. I think that's the key. Yeah. yeah, get out of there. Well, that is great. But, you know, if we got a report of a kidney punch and a back kick, it would probably be in the local paper for sure. It would definitely make a headline. And so I think it's time we check out our... JLA Grows in Rank announces DC Comics plans for a younger group of heroes to unite as a team for a title that will ultimately become one called Young Justice, though at this time, the working title for the book is the embarrassing JLA Jr. How do you feel about JLA Jr., Brockway? I, man, I thought this was, this was fascinating. I have an overarching theory about this entire, like, issue just as a fascinating cultural artifact yes that is prophesying a mighty change about to happen in, <laughs> in i guess all of culture because I, I read this little press release here and at one point they say like it's a real boys club of a comic you know just just boys hanging out no girls allowed doing fun stuff like wow that this was maybe the last month you were allowed to genuinely think that was cool before society was like I think we have enough of that, though, <laughs> because yeah. they were just unapologetic. I doubt anybody had ever even come to them and been like, no, we're done doing that. But it, like, I'm not here to litigate the past and be like, how dare you not have you? I'm just saying, like, you know what was coming. Unlike yeah. late 90s, early 2000s, you know, the sea change that was that. I think this is like the high watermark of just undisputed men owning comics and and having no oversight to it and then, then announcing finally finally we're getting rid of the one girl in the justice league <laughs> and you're, it's happening everybody well and it should be mentioned so when you hear the idea of jla jr immediately coming to mind is oh it's teen titans it's a new version of teen titans but they make it very clear that it's not teen titans because as the series writer todd dezago explains quote the titans are a family but these are just guys who enjoy hanging out together and like you said they're they're boys just bros yeah just bros <laughs> hanging out you know doing bro stuff that that girls don't understand and we don't care because it's not for them well, because it's the little rascals with superpowers. So the there little it is rascals right there. with superpowers. E-man woman also, haters. Yeah. Also, just I'm sure they pitched that when the little rascals came out. What a what an antiquated idea that was by 1997. Really, you want to do little rascals with superpowers? Because we've been doing that. That is like <laughs> half of every comic in the golden age was just just a prankster gets superpowers. But we do have something that sets up another question here because Dizago continues, quote, if the JLA motto is save the world then the junior motto is oops oh god <laughs> so i That's have rough. to ask yeah if your group of middle school friends had a one word motto what would it have been <laughs> do you have to ask um <laughs> ms13 no follow-up questions yes oh that oh a brockway fact okay we're gonna back away from that i mean i'm just gonna go out and say it i know 100 percent what it was in 1997 and it was Booze! But that's it. We're not going to delve into that. That's 100% what was on every boy's mind and everyone who picked up this issue, which we'll get into shortly. So, our next piece here, Fighting American Marches On Despite Lawsuit, details the court ruling in favor of Rob Liefeld's awesome entertainment after Marvel Comics files suit against the publisher for creating a character too similar to their own patriotic hero, Captain America. Now, Liefeld is quoted as saying, We appreciate the court's ruling, 
We keep the shield, the eagle on the head, and the star on the chest. The red, white, and blue. We're thrilled that we emerged victorious. However, it should be noted that the judge did rule that Liefeld and company had to agree to never show their character throwing his shield, <laughs> which is a great like, caveat. It's just like, yes, but <laughs> that's the one I thing Captain it. America does. It's in the I song. I love that he called that a victory. That's To <laughs> me, that just seems like they said, look, we get it. You're ripping off Captain America completely. You don't have another idea, but we can't trademark something as generic as like red, white, and blue. Like it's it's just America. We can't trademark America in the use of a comic book. So fine, you can do that, but we know what you want to do, which is to steal all of Captain America and make like a Captain America light or whatever you're going to do. So to specify, you to, to tell them you can't have him throw the shield is... Is even the court saying, like, you goddamn hack. Yeah. <laughs> you hack. We know what you're going to do. Don't do it. And then you come out like, uh, this is a big victory. This is a big victory for us. Like, no. No, you got schooled is what you got. And I will you tell you, schooled. Brockway, Rob Liefeld has devoted an entire episode of his podcast to gloat over the victory, detailing everything, I'm every sure. fax, every piece of the process as to how they, they flew across the country and surprised Marvel in court in order to prove that they had not ripped off Captain America. This character existed before Captain America. We just bought the license to cover that because <laughs> originally he was called Agent America and then they got fighting. American, which was a Jack Kirby, Joe Simon creation from way back when. But here's the thing, Brockway, before that, when the first issue of the Fighting American from Awesome Entertainment hit stands, they actually had a letter, okay? Rob Liefeld decided he's going to tell the story. He's going to tell people what almost didn't happen, this beautiful piece of art and literature that is in their hands. So I sent this over to you. I yeah. thought we could read some excerpts here. We could we can kind of go through it. We'll take some turns. So do you want to start or you want me to start? I'll start by saying this is one of the saddest things <laughs> I've ever read in my life. Like yeah. this, this genuinely sent me into a little a bit of an existential crisis. It's such a, oh, it's so sad. It hurts so bad. <laughs> all, all, all right. <clears throat> he starts with, so what do Fighting America, Heroes Reborn, and Todd McFarlane have in common? Aside from any connection I might have had with any of them in the past, present, or future, the answer is anger. Oh. <laughs> and already that image comics edge, just bringing that, <laughs> that cringy edge. So he... I want to skip ahead and he would he goes on to say upon working with Todd McFarlane now that he's he's in the same room with the Todd McFarlane I would always step back and look at Todd and how angry he was sometimes he was just plain seething most of it was directed at Marvel Comics he ranted and raged but through it all he succeeded past anyone's expectations I watched Todd harness his anger into an aggressive energy and helped him sharpen his focus into a deadly blade. <laughs> a deadly blade of Todd McFarlane's gentle Canadian anger. <laughs> it's just, just his comic book writing anger. This is, this is kind of going into what I was saying of like, I think this is the most 97 you could be. Yeah. I think after this, there, there is a sea change, and I think you can partially see it coming within these pages of like, maybe it's not cool to be like an unjustly angry white man and no other thing. Like, do you see how hard Rob is fighting here to not have another idea? 
Like it's Asian American. No, it's fighting America. No, I'm going to go to court. Like you could just have another idea. Like, you, <laughs> like I can't stop. I have a page with a million ideas. And my problem is like, how do I start on just one? And then I want to do all these other ones. And he's like, I almost had an idea. The idea was Captain America. It's mine now. I can't do it again. And so he, he writes in anger, praising the dark and furious energy of Todd McFarlane, who did the intros to the Spawn cartoon season one and was not invited back for season two. <laughs> well, and I, I want to jump in here because, yeah, he had just come off doing Captain America at Marvel for about six issues. It was supposed to be a year. He did not make it to the year mark. And he mentioned, though, with Heroes Reborn, that there was a lot of people that were not happy about it, especially the Marvel staff. But he says, the fans reacted in a frenzy, scooping up every copy and not just the first collectible issues, but each and every one thereafter. Its success threatened the mucky mucks at Marvel, who set about quickly dismantling a very promising franchise. And they succeeded. In an instant, the project went to crap. And as usual, the ones who suffered the greatest were you, the fans. I'm I'm only angry on your behalf. I'm only angry because of the wrongs they've done to you. I'm above it, frankly. I'm above all of it. Like you're just you're just showing your whole ass here. Well, Everybody sees right through it. And he, he specifically says, I saw the disappointment in your faces <clears throat> and I shared your anger. So now he's their hero. He's leading the charge. And jumping down, he says, We wouldn't be here if not for you. And I'm sorry that Marvel cheapened Heroes Reborn. <laughs> I'm sorry they cheapened my legacy for you. For you. I'm sorry. For you, the people. <laughs> the, uh, the next quote which is my favorite, which is just, it's, I don't understand why he keeps going with the letter <laughs> after this. He says, uh, <clears throat> in the wake of it all, I got angry. And for the first time in ages, I understood Todd's anger, felt it direct me and focus me. Let's rewind real quick. I understood Todd McFarlane's righteous anger. I felt <laughs> it inside of me, just giving me power. And then back to his quote, it grows every day and I thrive on it. Sometimes... <laughs> He said that. He really said that. It grows every day and I thrive on it. Sometimes I can feel that twitch of madness that I see behind Todd's eyes. It's both cool and scary at the same time. And just how hard did that make Todd McFarlane? That's all he ever wanted anybody to say about him is, that guy looks like he's on the verge of madness. It's cool and scary. He's wearing his dad's leather jacket. I'm terrified. Well, and it's amazing because, you know, if you listen to Rob Liefeld, especially talk about the image days, how much he looked up to Todd McFarlane as like an older brother. So this is 100% like, I'm going to be just like you, Todd. We're going to do it together. We're going to, it's us against the world. The anger's growing. I'm worried that there was a bigger nerd than Todd McFarlane. There's, <laughs> there's somebody that Todd McFarlane would have been like, can you chill? Did you write this about me and publish it about my furious? This is embarrassing. Todd never thought that. For an instant, to be clear, Todd loved it. it he has this framed. And the last thing we'll just say here is like really what he's kind of trying to leave off on. He's because he doesn't go into the details here. <laughs> it would take 20 odd years until his podcast. But he says, if you only knew the lengths to which Marvel has gone to make sure this book would not make it into your hands. Lawyers, lawsuits, harassment, more anger, more fuel. Keep it up, Marvel. At this rate, I'll be able to take on a nuclear warhead, which is the only logical place to go after taking on the combined forces of Image Comics and Marvel Entertainment. Ain't it cool? Oh, Rob. 
I'm so powerful. I'm like a nuclear bomb of comic book writing. But I'm not. Remember, everybody, please remember, I'm not as cool as Todd McFarlane. He has mastered his anger. <laughs> Sharpened psychic blade of Todd McFarlane's fury driving me onward. Yes. This is, I cannot imagine a more embarrassing thing than this. That was legitimately hard to read. Yes, I know, I know. And it's uh, it's one of those things uh, we, we've spent a lot of time uh, with Rob on this podcast and uh, online where he got very angry at us, not for any fault of our own, but uh, that's another story the listeners know. But let's get into this next one here, unless you had another thought there, Robert. Just, I, I'm just, it's proving my thesis more and more every single artifact we go through is that I think this is the peak. It's like comic books went through the Attitude Era right before wrestling. Yeah. Like, this is it. This is like everybody, everybody's a bad boy. I'm Rob Liefeld. I'm a bad boy, but not as bad a boy as the baddest boy, Todd McFarlane. <laughs> everybody just wants to be so cool and they think they're so hard in this and they think that's a great thing to be. Like they don't see anything wrong with that. And I, it's, you can feel it with like the hindsight of history. You can feel like there's a big wave behind you and it's about to crash. Like 1998, it's coming down. Speaking of the Attitude Era, I will tell you within two years of this issue, both Sting with his crow makeup and The Undertaker make the cover of Wizard Magazine. So Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah, they do. We were all just, everybody's a bad boy. The whole team. The whole team is wild cards. That's right. But next one here, speaking of wild cards, the Wizard Question of the Month sidebar is getting the poll results from America Online, which uh, they were asking which character in comics is the greatest prankster? You know, that question that every actor is asked on the press circuit. Oh, were there any pranks on set? Who's the greatest prankster in the cast? Well, we're going to find out here. So Spider-Man won out with 31% of the vote. He was followed by Deadpool with 25%. Unexpectedly, Green Lantern earned 11%. I'm assuming they're talking about the Kyle Rayner younger version at this time. I don't think Hal Jordan was much of a prankster. While Grunge from Gen 13 scored 10%. Impulse, the young Flash, grabbed 8%. Blue Beetle, pulled in 7%, while Daredevil came in last with 4%, causing him to tie with the 4% that was awarded to the other category for people who didn't agree on any of those characters. So, first off, any thoughts on who you think might be the greatest prankster? It's just the worst poll. People ask <laughs> that question of, like, movie stars and stuff because it they want, like, an authentic, relatable, we want to relate to you. Like, this is written down. This is written down in advance. They're not they're not real and pulling pranks on each other. So who writes the best pranks for their character is just, I feel so bad for some of the people that had to write <laughs> this stuff for Wizard just every month, every month, month after month for years. And you're just like, I don't have anything. I don't have anything else. I saw on Entertainment Tonight, somebody asked Brad Pitt how he liked, you know, pranking. And he was like, so happy about it. People will like that. So let's do a poll about that. <laughs> The editor-in-chief of Wizard, Pat McCallum at this time, his life was pranking all the other staff members. Like, literally, all the people we've interviewed from Wizard, they're like, he pranked us constantly until there were just prank wars. Everybody, everybody wanted to get on his team, so they weren't being pranked. We're going to go against Toy Fair. We're going to go against Inquest. So. <laughs> Sounds like a healthy work environment. Team full <laughs> of wild cards, everybody. <laughs> but let me ask you this, then. Turning the tables, which comics character would you most want to pull a prank on? How do you suppose you would do it? Somebody, is it John Sable? <laughs> You've read his books? You've seen the mastermind behind no. it all? No. He'd, he'd just shoot me and bang my mom. <laughs> like, we all know what he'd do. I would, uh, 
Man, pranks aren't really my thing. Unless gaslighting and treachery are a prank. Like, we've established Sean is the uh, the direct kung fu master, and I'm the guy that puts bear traps behind his opponents so that yeah. they get just to maximize the damage. So, like, I probably wouldn't really... Pr if you put me in there to prank, I would, I would like, old boy Wolverine. I would put Wolverine through old boy. And everybody <laughs> would be like, what's wrong with you? That was way too far. Like, and I'd be like... yeah. I, I don't know. This is, you wanted me to be fun. This is fun to me. This is what, <laughs> this is what did you not have? Are you not entertained? His tongue grows back. It's fine. Wow. There you have it, guys. You know, April Fool's Day, stay away from Brockway. Don't push him. Don't encourage him. <laughs> I just, I don't understand human boundaries. <laughs> well, next one here, it's reported that a New York City bar called Openers has added a superhero mural to their beer garden wall, which was painted by Marvel Comics freelance artist Scott Elmer. This wall was said to soon have additional indie comics icons like Vampirella, Ash, She, and many more added to the mural. Now, to celebrate the grand opening party, comic book creators like Jimmy Palbiotti, Joe Casada, Amanda Connor, Billy Tucci, Mark Wade, and others, they gathered to sing karaoke in costume. Mark Wade went all out wearing a Golden Age Flash costume, complete with the tin pan helmet looking like like Mercury Brockway, have you ever dared to cosplay? I think I know the answer here, but have you ever gone so far? No, but I mean, Halloween, like I always went all out on Halloween. Oh, yeah. I, I read through this article about openers and it's it's a it's Joe Caseta starts it by saying this is lame this time to the reporter. He's like making excuses like this is super tame compared to what we did. We once had stripping midgets and an electric chair in here. Like he's trying yeah. so hard to be like, we're not nerds. But like his con his conception of edgy is like it's we, we were almost an amateur wrestling level event here <laughs> with with our midgets and our electric chair. They're trying so hard to be bad boys, every one of them, and they just have no basis. They, they're like, we have a comic book bar. And instead of being like, that's adorable, look at us in our costumes and our silly costumes and look at our murals and like, that's great. Be that. You're like, you couldn't be a nerd back then. You had to be like, we're rock stars. This is what rock stars look like. You, you have to also recognize it's the bottom rug of what is cool that a nerd, we say, oh man, that was wild. That was cool. And Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti were known in the comic book industry for throwing these wild parties. Like yeah. the wizard staffers we've talked to, they're like, we can't even tell you what went on there. It was so out of control. <laughs> it's like, you just wonder, you know, what yeah, it was. Yeah, somebody did a beer bong is what yeah. happened. <laughs> like, you, I, I, if you're like, oh, this is tame, we had stripping. No, you were never that wild. Your conception of wild is tame tainted by a, a very sheltered life because people forget people like not our age forget now that every movie in the world is marvel and it's the biggest thing but you were not supposed to be a nerd like no <laughs> still in 90s still in when we were at the start of the comic book movie era and it was starting to come out you were still beat up for being a nerd and it was not cool so i don't blame them for being like no no we're rock stars but it's 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 sad now that we understand the way to popularize nerds and to make it acceptable was to just be that just be yourself and it's fine but watching them struggle against that just fighting self-realization like it's a foe <laughs> and losing that wrestling match it's it's incredible it does feel like we saw enough 80s and 90s like high school movies where the person's pretending to be something they're not, and then they get found out that we finally just said, it's not worth all the rigmarole. We'll just be us. You know? And like, everybody's like, wait, is this is this fun? Shit, this is fun. Okay. There's 150 million Dungeons and Dragons movie and it rules. It's yeah. the best. Didn't used to be though.
Nope. Speaking of fiestas, those parties, a comic convention fiesta in Mexico is a special report from writer-artist Dan Jurgens. He was the one who did the whole death of Superman, that big issue that you might remember that moment. He talks about his trip to a convention in Mexico City where he was joined by fellow Superman creatives Louise and Walter Simonson, John Bogdanov, DC editor Denny O'Neill, and native Mexican-turned-American comics artist Umberto Ramos. Apparently, at this time, comic book stores had just come into existence in Mexico as of 1993, and then the hobby exploded in popularity, hence these conventions. Jurgens reports this heartwarming thing, which is pretty nice, quote, One big impression that I'm left with is that the comics and paperbacks they're giving us to sign are, in many cases, beat, and beat badly. They're wrinkled, torn, and worn, which means they've been read and cherished, just like when I was a kid. It's great to see, because to me, that's what comics are all about. So, the beat and beat badly, it's kind of a good line, but... <laughs> Still. Yeah, he's not not great. I read through this one. I sound like I'm here to litigate the past. I keep doing it. But different time, yes. He, he uh, yeah, I don't wanna I don't want anybody canceled for it, but it's funny looking back and seeing him say in an enlightened way, like trying to praise them, he says, The only Spanish I know is the Taco Bell menu. I doubt a cabbie will know where to go when I say burrito supremo. <laughs> Well, and he also was told that they gave him like this fried worms food to eat. He's like, I put a lot of guacamole on it. And he's like, it's a delicacy. And like, maybe, maybe parts of that are a delicacy. I promise you that you're eating worms because you're being shitty about it. I think they were pranking him, yeah. Let's get the white boy to eat worms. It's like if you come in acting like a big city guy in in the Midwest somewhere, you're going to eat some Rocky Mountain oysters. It's the same thing. I mean, he ends his little piece by going, don't drink the water. Come on. I got to ask you, though, Brockway, have you ever been to a comic convention or San Diego Comic-Con or any of the the big pop culture events. Do you have a favorite story or is there a highlight for you? Uh, the release of my my first book trilogy with Tor McMillan, which is called The, the Vicious Circuit. That, that was The Unnoticeables, The Empty Ones, and then uh, Kill All Angels are the three books in that series. And for each of those, they sent me on tours, uh, a lot of which was just doing you know readings at places, but some of which were also going to conventions, which I uh, I had never done. That was not something I was or am interested in to this day. So my first comic book convention ever was uh, San Diego Comic Con in 2017, 2016. I forget, the, I forget the year because time is destroyed and means nothing. I don't even know what year it is. But that was my very first taste of comic book conventions. And it was like walking into a nightmare. I was in no way prepared for the entire city turning into just a madhouse. There was, there was, I swear to God, there had to be a million people in like a six block radius. And I was sent, I was thrust into this as you're here as an author. So I, my job was to do a signing and to go on a, on a panel. And I I was like, okay, I know what panels are sort of. And so they, they sent me in there. There was like 5,000 people in this room for this panel. I'm sure I'm exaggerating, but it was packed and I couldn't see the end of it. I was just like, I, oh my God. And that was, I, that is somebody's nightmare to go to a comic book convention and like, now you're on a panel. Like, okay, now it's like, it's like 5,000 people because the people I was with were very famous. Were very, oh, they were, okay. they were, yeah, like they weren't here to see me. They were there to see <laughs> all of these people and they just somehow slipped me onto the panel and it, it was, it was surreal and nightmarish. It was very interesting, but I completely disassociated. Like as soon as I stepped into that, 
I don't know that I've ever been in that kind of a throng of people. And then to have have it just the noise and have everybody like dressed up and then there are events and people like shoving you around and then somebody throws you onto a panel in front of 5,000 people and then you're dragged back out and put in a booth. And, and it was it was nuts, man. I did, I did not like that experience. <laughs> not going back anytime soon. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that's the typical experience, I'm sure. I don't no, need to but... cast aspersions on anybody's fun, but, but it was literally like a nightmare. You just happen to be clothed in this one in front of that many people. Yeah. I hope so. It's all kind of a blur. There might <laughs> oh. be some pictures. Well, we are going to now jump into kind of the meat of this issue here and check out our table of contents because Wizard 75 with a November 1997 cover date featured two different covers. Now, the first was a Justice League of America cover by Alex Ross, uh, which according to the Wizard Big Book of Covers was planned as a gatefold, but cropped because no advertisers wanted uh, to create a multi-page ad to put behind it at that time, even though it had been done quite a bit years before. But the second cover featured a character who was referred to on a recent eBay listing I found for this issue as, quote, Big Boob Witch, a.k.a. Lady Death. As art drawn by the artist of the series, Stephen Hughes, she's wearing a pointed witch hat while riding a broomstick. And uh, the issue came packed with a poster that had the full Alex Ross JLA image on one side, the Top Cow's new title, Ascension, being promoted on the other side. But I got to ask you about this cover, Broadway. When you saw Lady Death riding a broom, ready for the holiday season, she's got a jack-o'-lantern by her caboose. What was your thought? Yeah, just Maxim for nerds. Yeah, we see what you're doing. It's pretty transparent. Is Big Boob Witch unfair in any way? No, it's 100% the accurate description. (laughs) That might have sold just as many issues as Lady Death. I don't, I don't remember. I have like a, <laughs> a complete blank spot. I don't remember Lady Death at all. Not at no, all. No cultural impact on me. But I got to say also included uh, in the poly bag, because this is what Wizard did, right? <clears throat> Get you by the issue. You don't like Big Boob Witch? Maybe you want some of the goodies inside. So there was a uh, Wizard Chrome trading card of Jim Lee's Divine Right. There was a Witchblade the Darkness promo trading card, an order form for a variant cover version of Witchblade number 18. But the issue also featured the first Marvel Comics mail-away offer in Wizard. They've been fighting for 75 issues to get in Marvel's good graces. This was for a Wolverine half issue. So to celebrate their new partnership, Wizard was allowing readers to order up to two copies, which had never been done before. You were limited to one per customer all these years. <laughs> they've been doing half issues. So this, uh, you know, packing in the freebies was a bit of the gimmick for Wizard, as we said, but I'm just curious, since we're talking 90s comics, do you have any record collection of any gimmick covers you saw back in the day or a promotion from that era that's been explored or brought up to you at some point man there were so many god that was just god that was the heyday for that stuff everything was glitter or gold or pop out or breaking the frame or something like i must have made comic book stores so unhappy trying to stock it and all they're all literally fighting with each other just a a dazzling hypnotic display i remember the dumbest one (laughs) was that i think it was Fenders? No, it was it was Malibu. Was it Protectors? That was oh yes, Malibu? Protectors. Yeah, with like with like a bullet hole through it, and like yep. there was just a hole punched out through the whole issue. <laughs> and I remember I owned it because I had, at that point I was just buying everything. Like I bought a lot of Malibu and was always like, "What is this? What am I doing? <laughs> Why am I doing this?" But even I remember like a total sucker for the gimmick aimed specifically at me at the time, being like, "This is dumb." With the hole punched through. 
you did not earn this. And then reading it through, I mean, okay, this never paid off in a satisfying way. So this was something we <laughs> learned in the early days of the show because Wizard reported on those gimmicks and things happening. There was another company that was like, you know, an indie press company that did that gimmick before Malibu because they literally went out, put their comics on a firing range and shot them with different caliber bullets. And then you could get different variants, you know, based on what caliber of bullet. And then I mean, Malibu that sucks, but it. it's way cooler. It yeah. sucks, but it's genuinely cool. And Malibu stole the lame version <laughs> of that. I, I write about Malibu all the time on 1900hotdog.com. Yeah. Come visit. Malibu is my favorite because they just, they're so slapdash. And it's in an era where comic books were really taking off. Like they were really starting to become big business. How do you not know how to do this at that point? And you're still going is incredible. They had so many series. It's a running joke around us that they just cancel abruptly. And the, the end of the story is just an apology from <laughs> Malibu. We're sorry. We're sorry we did this. It was dumb. Uh, we owe you all an apology. We'll do better next time. I believe their exact words at, at the end of maybe it was Exiles. We're just like, we'll do better <laughs> next time. <laughs> like, it's a it's an actual title you published, though. Like, you sold it to us. You don't get an IOU for get doing better next time. I gotta say, though, they're one of the success <clears throat> stories from a business standpoint because they got bought out by Marvel. So at the moment the Madness. industry was tanking, Marvel comes in and just says, hey, we'll buy you up. And so they, they made out like bandits in the end. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, that scene when that happens, when they're all just like, they have to be realizing at their desk, like, oh, my God. Oh, what are we going to do? I'm just, I'm going to have to go back to the car wash <laughs> because I'm going to move back in with my mom and then Marvel busts through the door like, here's a million dollars, chumps. Each get out. <laughs> just oh. won the lottery. Got saved. Ugh. They it's are, crazy, but owe. like their story, like you say, the stuff they published, they did the Ultraverse, they did their comics before that, they tried their best in publishing, and they, they had a yeah. run. They really tried to do it. But the other thing is, too, they were the original publishers of Image Comics. So, like, they cashed in kind of twice. Like, they got real lucky, so that, that they, whatever they were doing. <laughs> they owe some dark god a terrible yeah. price. Like, you don't want to know what's going to happen to them in the afterlife. It's not... It's not going to be pretty. <laughs> All right. Well, our first cover story here, A League of Its Own. Oh, they always had these <laughs> types of titles. Puts a unique spin on the who would win style features the magazine had been running at this time by pitting classic Silver Age Justice League members against their modern day counterparts from the hugely successful JLA written by Grant Morrison. And so they got the writer to kind of give his thoughts on who would win. <clears throat> now, on your extra wiener episodes, your Patreon bonus episodes, you guys have been known to to subject your guests to episodes of the old Super Friends cartoon and uh, really take a look at uh, what was going on with that very poor quality, poorly written show. So as you use kind of your experience, maybe you could tell us who you think would come away with the victory from a Super Friends perspective. So if anything comes to mind, feel free to shout it out. I don't think it applies because one of the things we've learned and been most enthusiastic for about watching the old Super Friends again, first of all, is that they never had a set runtime. So there's like a three-minute episode, now there's a seven-minute. I can't imagine the chaos it was making those. But also that they couldn't fight. They couldn't, like, shoot guns. They couldn't They couldn't even punch. You couldn't show them punching, like, a fist connecting with somebody else. So every single fight would just be, like, Batman swinging into a computer and knocking it over on somebody, or them getting stuck in, like, like pudding or ice cream or something. It was always... 
this absolutely absurd thing. And like worst case scenario, if they had no other ideas, a magic beam. There's like a convenient anti this guy beam. I think that's how it worked. If you involve the super friends in any sort of melee, Batman's just going to to trick them into quicksand and then tell them a moral about like, this is why you don't shoplift. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it should be noted too here, Brockway, that many of the power levels and abilities had been changed in the wake of Crisis on Infinite Earths in the 80s. So Wizard is taking that into account here, why things may be so different in the modern age. And that led to the following results of the matchup. So they start with the big guns. Silver Age Superman, they say, beats the modern version because as Morrison puts it, quote, the pre-crisis Superman could throw planets around and move suns. The current one seems to be losing his powers all the time and gets hurt too easily. <laughs> Grant's so tame here. He's so understandable and coherent. <laughs> yeah, if we had to listen to his accent, there's no way we'd know what he's saying here. This is before he went full chaos magician. And I just, I love, <laughs> I love that version of him. Like I know people criticize him and Alan Moore, but the wackier they get, the happier I am. All right, next one here. Modern day Wonder Woman gets the victory over the Golden Age Diana Prince because, quote, she could fly after all, whereas the older version couldn't. Diana used to be the league's secretary. The old typist wouldn't stand a chance against the warrior she is today. Good call, Grant. Modern Batman beats out the older model due to the fact that according to Morrison, quote, the modern Batman has been built up to be so invincible. Wizard adds their description of the Silver Age Batman as, quote, more mistake prone and impulsive to help justify that. So yes, if you look at, you know, the 50s and 60s Batman, there was definitely a lot of wackiness going on. So, but Grant Morrison had a part to play in, in like the Bat God form of Batman, as people often put it. So I think that's fair. Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, defeats his younger replacement Kyle Rayner, according to Wizard. But Morrison declares that it would be too close to call. Wizard does not agree. They admit that Kyle has more imagination, but Hal's lack of fear and sheer willpower are cited to give him the advantage. No mention of who would win in a prank war, however. I still think that's, yeah, a weird poll uh, concept there. Just pure, you can sense as a writer, and especially as a writer who has worked on like the internet's deadlines, which are often just a day, I can taste desperation. And that's that's somebody that was right up until the line was like, I have nothing. I have nothing. What am I going to do? A uh, poll. I've got it. A poll is the is the desperate man's last resort. I mean, it was the internet. We were so excited to be able to reach out across the universe, you know, and bring everybody in at once to vote on who is the greatest prankster. AOL polls. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they're the BuzzFeed quiz of their day. Yep, absolutely. Now, Silver Age Aquaman loses quickly to the grittier 90s version because, as Morrison states, and this is Ultimate 90s Extreme, quote, the current guy would just harpoon his younger self when he wasn't looking. Young Aquaman would be trying to call in small fish to swim around. Meanwhile, the new one would be cutting his head off with his hand and stringing his guts up in the Aqua Cave. Ooh, very evocative. Hard hardcore 90s edge grant morrison <laughs> now according to morrison barry allen flash loses out to his protege wally west because quote he's been doing the whole hero thing since he was a kid wally's faster than barry ever could have hoped to have been so there you go just experience kid flash goes on to be the best flash i like the uh the flash from openers i like the drunk comic book artist <laughs> in uh in his mom's sweater and colander Flash. That's my flash. <laughs> oh, Mark Wade. Number seven here. We have the original Green Arrow. Oliver Queen beats his son, Connor Hawk, because in Morrison's mind, quote, Ollie was so good. 
he could use boxing glove arrows and handcuff arrows and still be a threat. It's his imagination and wit that would save the day for Ollie, which I love that. He wasn't lame. He was so good. He was just messing around now. <laughs> he was creating his own challenges. No, I'm on Team Grell, Team Mike Grell. Older, <laughs> older Green Arrow all the way. Finally, modern Martian Manhunter beats out the 60s version of John Jones because as Morrison declares, quote, you could keep giving him new powers and tell people he just hasn't bothered to reveal them yet. Which sounds like the writer's hack for hack writers. <laughs> Morrison revealing a little too much there. Little cute turn of phrase. You had that cute turn of phrase and you wanted to use it. <laughs> Ain't we'll I a stinker? Wizard taught me well. I'll blame Wizard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, here is the moment of truth here, Brockway, in our table of contents. Officially, the Big Boob Witch cover was justified by the inclusion of a casting call for a live-action Lady Death movie. But as you said, you have no frame of reference for Lady Death. But yeah, I don't know what that is. Yeah. It could also represent the sixth annual Wizard Halloween costume contest. So I'm going to give you the choice. Are we going to talk about the casting call for a Lady Death movie, or are we going to look at a few nerds cosplaying and sending it in for the world to see? Well, uh... The, the movie was going to be called Lady Death, and uh, can you tell me real quick who the casting call was for Lady Death? Yes. So, Lady Death, who is really the only character that matters in all of that. Just so you know, she's this peasant girl, made a deal with the devil, went down to hell, became, you know, the bride of Satan, essentially. Then she becomes all-powerful, takes over, and she was going to be played by Anna Nicole Smith, according to Wizard Magazine. <laughs> I think it's just going to be sad if we talk about Lady Death being Anna Nicole Smith. I think we've got to duck that one. Okay. Let's, uh, let's, do let's do goofy Halloween costumes. So I will tell you, uh, my co-host Michael and I, every year we do a full YouTube video. We cover every single one of those. But as we look through here, I want you just to scan it quickly. Tell me which of these either you're most impressed by or which one causes you the most concern to consider just oh i don't like that <laughs> I, I don't like their caption for dr strange who was saying by the hoary hosts of horgoth i command you to take off your pants <laughs> i don't think that one plays quite the same when you have amateur level costume dr strange who just looks like a magician and a magician would legitimately be trying to trick you into taking off your pants like this is just <laughs> This is just what you see at a bar after a magician is done with their set. These types of word balloons and captions was their bread and butter, which is what led to the creation of Robot Chicken. I don't know if you're aware that Robot Chicken is made up outside of Seth Green. Three wizard staff members are the, the writing crew for that show and constantly with action figures in their price guide, they were asking each other to take their pants off. <laughs> that was just a go-to joke. I, yeah, I saw the the captions in the uh, in the price guide <laughs> for all the action figures, and I just I couldn't imagine like a worse job to give a comedy writer because he's so devoid of context. Like they're just like here, here's an action figure. You get one panel, no setup, nothing to play off of, no context, and over and over again, often with the same figures. Like they started going through duplicate versions of the figures and like you have to come up with a new joke for every one of those it just it's this is how i would punish a writer like <laughs> if i was a showrunner this is how i would punish somebody that habitually showed up late i would make them write contextless captions for action figures over and over again 
So you would say that Doctor Strange is the one that gets the biggest reaction from you then? Uh, yeah, there's there's a green hour here that's going to murder hippies. I remember when that was your default joke. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> this is a dark, dark seed going, I'm mad, bad, and full of dove bars. It's some peak... 1997 they were never kind to their heavier readers who entered the uh, costume contest he's kind of a thick boy already i think yeah, it's fine but exactly mad bad and full of dove bars is just re- the <laughs> refusal to try on that one is good no i'm gonna give it i'm gonna the the pallid lighting the, the shine and the the pale skin and then the amateur doctor strange costume just looks like you're you're about to be harassed at the bar at a magic show like, yeah, yeah, that goes to Dr. I mean, we, we were talking about, uh, before we came on the air, you know, failed pop culture brothers, and it does feel like that's David Copperfield's. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is like early David Copperfield. This yeah. is just like, what an unhappy ex <laughs> explains how they met. Somehow I wound up with him anyway. <laughs> All right, well, closing out here, uh, Kelly's Heroes is an interview with recent college graduate and rookie Marvel writer Joe Kelly, who had somehow worked his way up to writing the X-Men comic after a whirlwind year of handling stories for the likes of Daredevil and Deadpool, which he will continue to write in addition to writing the X-Men now. Now, most of the interview is Kelly tried to wrap his head around such a major assignment, though he does share this story, quote, I have really bad sleep problems, had them all my life. As a kid, to help myself fall asleep, I would make up an ongoing X-Men story. Of course, in those stories, I was one of the characters, but this job definitely harkens back to that. Aw, that's cute. I didn't read a word of this. I could not (laughs) concentrate because it's full of cheesecake shots of Joe Kelly. Just, he's doing everything. He's giving you every... Every pose in the book, he's giving you the the sunglasses down. Check out, yeah. Hey, how you doing? We get the close up on the the sharp lined goatee of 1997. We get this like wet lipped pouty. Hey, girl, I'm just thinking about you. Kind of face. It's just he's he's giving that photographer everything he could possibly need. That T-shirt tucked into those high waisted jeans <laughs> does it does it for me. Couldn't concentrate on the words. I will say that uh, we had Jason Liebig on from CollectingCandy.com and he does a lot of TV talking head stuff about pop culture food and he was an assistant editor on the X-Men books at this time and he said when Joe Kelly came in, he was wearing the sunglasses He's he he was creating uh you know, his persona you know, like you've just been saying the whole time that was what you were trying to do in the 90s in comics you, you had to do something to set yourself apart. People know, that's Joe Kelly Kelly. So he was just like the alpha bad boy. No, no, no. That's Todd McFarlane. He's the alpha bad boy. Although I will say this falling asleep by telling your own stories doesn't bode well for the comics to come. <laughs> like it's it's kind of a threat, I feel like, that he's gonna put us to sleep. This is our I really dragged on. I'll tell you. Yeah. I will say though, he did stay on the book for quite a while. So good for him. He managed you know to, it's to his looks. There. You know but... it's his looks. Those but good, he, those good looks, that that clean goatee, the wink in his eye, uh, because it's mentioned, though, several times in this interview that Kelly was getting married five days after this interview took place. And so he closes out with this final statement, quote, it's like my fiance Gina says, weddings don't impress me. Anniversaries do. Getting the gig is great, but keeping the gig is what's going to be important. So the million dollar question, Brockway, are you more impressed by weddings or anniversaries? Neither. <laughs> I guess no. What a strange question. Uh, 
I guess weddings, because you know who you're on an anniversary, but a wedding can still be a surprise. Wow. As long as you're not the one getting married. The unknown there. For me, anniversaries are too sad because I take that like overall, like, you know, you say wedding anniversary, but there are a lot of anniversaries that come up on my feed on social media and I'm kind of depressed by them. So I'd rather go into the festive wedding. I used to work uh, catering at, uh, at very fancy golf and yacht clubs and they would, you know, weddings were a huge part of that. You just constantly, I've seen so many weddings. They're the horniest places. Like it gets to be annoying how many people are hooking up in like the bathroom Oh, just wow. out in the bushes outside. <laughs> so, yeah, man. Weddings, I guess. There you go. Now, there have been many films based around weddings and people wearing high-waisted jeans in the 90s, but uh, we're going to check out what was actually making it onto the, the silver screen here at this time with our Heroes in Motion. Hulk film greenlighted for 98 announces that Universal Pictures is moving forward with a live action Hulk movie targeted for a July 4th, 1998 release. The film is being produced by Gail Ann Hurd of Terminator and Aliens fame, but is being directed and written by her husband, Jonathan Hensley, who wrote Die Hard with a Vengeance and the Michael Bay trilogy of The Rock, Con Air, and Armageddon, among many others. Now, it's rumored that Johnny Depp has been approached to star. Hensley says, quote, for Bruce Banner, we're looking for an actor who can convey huge intelligence, neediness, and an obsessiveness, and also smoldering inner demons. As for Banner's giant green counterpart, it's planned to be a CGI creation that would appear in both a 9-foot form and a 12-foot form. And of course, like 75% of the projects mentioned in this column, this 90s version of the movie never happens. Brockway, has there been a good live-action version of the Hulk? Is he on your radar as one of the good ones? Lou Ferrigno, next question. <laughs> no argument. Okay. No, I will brook no arguments. I will say I was bored right as the show was ending. Uh, I, I've seen it. I love Lou Ferrigno. There's a charm to Bill Bixby. I love the TV movies as a kid. This is controversial, but I actually like like the first Hulk movie that came out right after Iron Man, at least from a design standpoint. I think Hulk looks pretty cool in that. Looks better than the Ang Lee and not as cute as the current version. So, I don't know. I, I, I'll go on record with that. Nah, Lou Ferrigno was his own special effect. You can't beat that. <laughs> Wizard reports on the end of Beavis and Butthead on MTV after more than 200 episodes as of October 10th, 1997. And it's mentioned that the characters could return in a sequel film to Beavis and Butthead to America, which at this point was the highest grossing non-Disney animated film in history. And of course, the idiot pair don't return to theaters, but they do come back to MTV in the mid-2000s to make fun of reality television. And now they've had a very successful return on HBO Max. Max or just Max over the last few years. So good for them. Brockway, what was your impression of Beavis and Butthead in the 90s? Yeah, they were all right. When we were kids around this era was like the last hurrah of MTV. Yeah. They were only just starting to do like televised programs, but they were still doing music a lot of the times. And they had, they had I think they had launched MTV too by that point. So man, everybody I knew just had it on all the time. 
And they they didn't have as many episodes of Beavis and Butthead as they did people watching it. It was just you would see the same episode over and over again. You didn't have a choice to know about them. So I don't know that I, I even kept affection for them so much as familiarity. It's like seeing a co-worker at that <laughs> point. You're just like, hey, Beavis, all right. But like, I guess I, I'm a Daria guy. I, I'll take Jane Lane. Jane Lane can still get it. That's yeah, that's it. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I was watching Beavis and Butthead while I was waiting for Eon Flux or uh, like the state because the state was where I lived to breathe. Yeah, so. they didn't play. They didn't play that enough. Like, yeah. they played Beavis and Butthead all the time. You were, you had to like because we didn't know. We didn't know when anything was on. You had, <laughs> there was no way of telling. You had sometimes you'd be up until like three in the morning, and then they'd play the state or Eon Flux. Like, oh my god, finally! Oh my, I can't believe it. And you tell somebody about it. And they wouldn't believe you. I had friends that didn't believe me Aeon Flux existed. And there was no way, no way for me to prove it. Then, like, I, I, I was just speechless. Here's their, uh, their oh. closing uh, MTV News. I just saw that. No uh, way. Yeah, MTV News is dead, man. But As Kurt like Loder yesterday. and Tabitha Sorod are long gone anyway, right? Yeah, Kurt Loder was my man, though. Yeah. I'll take Kurt Loder over. I, I loved his, his, uh, his whole reports whenever they break in. And he just... He was kind of my hero for not belonging and not giving a shit. Like he, he did not belong on MTV at all. And he was so aggressive about it. He was so just like, yeah, do something. He would just <laughs> dare you to dare you to fire him. He'd, he'd roll his eyes and just like lean back in his chair at the end of a segment. Like, yeah, who, who gives a shit about this Britney Spears? I don't know. I mean, it, but for me, though, like Tabitha Soren, she was the one like she was the epitome of a college girl at that age. When I'm in like, high school and I'm seeing her report, I'm just like, that's what all the older girls are like. They don't care, man. They're so blasé, you know, so yeah. <laughs> and you weren't wrong in that in the <laughs> 90s. That was how you that was the right way to be was was pure apathy. Yeah. <laughs> loader up there living out his his own private plot of office space no. try to fire me i dare you <laughs> i love that guy i will say beavis and butthead did make the cover of wizard you better believe it and the fusion of the simpsons and beavis and butthead south park appeared several times later on so they were they were just around the corner they're about to take over so uh finally sandra hess who was taking over for Bridget Wilson as Sonya Blade in Mortal Kombat Annihilation, which was like the biggest scandal of my young life because I saw uh, Mortal Kombat and Billy Madison multiple times in theaters just for Bridget Wilson at that moment in time. She is interviewed in this issue and makes a statement that will ring through the halls of history as one of the dumbest things ever uttered, and we have been reading Rob Liefeld letters. So here is how it goes. Quote, I have to tell you, completely objectively, the second Mortal Kombat film blows the first one out of the water. The first one is awful compared to the second one. I'm speechless. I'm so angry. I'm furious. <laughs> like, we all know how that movie turned out. And, That's uh, the one with the, uh, the like, exploding ninja meteors like the ninjas come down from the sky and explode and yeah it's like the little the, the centaur little guy man. yeah and the centaur man that's malibu from uh from american gladiators that's right they did a whole and, interview uh, with him in one of wizard's spinoff magazines and he did such a good job he tried so hard <laughs> she's right actually i'm with her annihilation rules oh annihilation. so much fun no annihilation Exploding ninja meteors that's <laughs> a, that's the end that's the end of your argument one has them one doesn't <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, uh, it, it was it was a rough one for me. OK, so that being the case, though, she was all in on the hype. Here's a couple of guys who might have been known for doing the same. We got to rev up Jim and Todd's hype machine. 
so there was no Todd McFarlane news in this issue. <laughs> there was no mention of Todd really hardly that's at all. That's not true. There was that there was that letter. Was that letter in the Well, issue? no, the letter was not in the issue. That's from Aww. Fighting American Comics, yeah. That's <laughs> news that that Rob Liefeld just adores everything about uh, the dark madness within <laughs> Todd McFarlane. That's the best news I've ever heard possibly in my life. <laughs> but I guess if it wasn't in this issue. Yeah, unfortunately it doesn't qualify. But Jim Lee got a full multi-page feature. The Wizard Q&A with Jim Lee is very timely since Jim was just appointed president of DC Comics. It was all over the news. But at this time, having just finished his contract with Marvel for Heroes Reborn, Lee admits that this may be the last thing he ever draws for Marvel, which of course proves to be true when Lee sells his Wildstorm Studios to DC Comics in 1998. And he's been with them ever since and has continued to climb the ladder as we see. But Lee also also expresses his disappointment in the attitudes of the Marvel staff towards he and Rob Liefeld's contribution to Marvel over the past year. Maybe in a more democratic way. Let's see. Quote, If anyone goes out there and takes a group of books no one seems to care about, triples sales, and gets readers excited by it, everyone will be slapping him on the back and saying, great job! That wasn't there for us. And there's still people denying the obvious success we've had. It hurts that Marvel doesn't want to give credit where credit is due. I like the declaration of of nuclear madness that it builds within <laughs> me. And I'm going to go off like a nerd bomb in your life and destroy destroy your company. I like Rob's big proclamations a lot better than that. It hurts. It's, I mean, he, one's more authentic. I believe Jim yeah. Lee has a reasonable response. But in this, in this attitude era of comics... Rob's putting you in the dirt, Jim, man. Overshadowed. Somehow, Jim Lee, how did he do it? Everyone around him is all bravado, and he's just climbing, climbing, climbing to the top. Nobody else is president of anything. Just I mean, looking around thinking like, have you guys tried actually working? Like the sunglasses <laughs> are cool, but maybe try actually working? Very savvy dude. Now, on the flip side, though, from his disappointment, Lee cites a recent trip to Spain for a signing where the enthusiasm of a young fan seeing him draw did a little something for this guy who might have been becoming a little jaded. He says, quote, I did this sketch for a kid. It was 12 or 14 years old. I literally watched his eyes light up. This huge smile crossed his face as he cheered up instantly. No explanation as to why he was so down. <laughs> no, I need to cheer up. But I just realized the impact you could have on people with your work. Sometimes you feel all these people lined up and you see them as people that want your autograph. You don't realize that each of them are like you were when you were a kid, simply loving comics. Discovering uh, human empathy. <laughs> I, lost I just got back. it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even knocking him. He's discovering human empathy in 1997. That was difficult. We Nobody had that. We didn't know what that was. I think we invented that in like 2008. It would be a while. He's a decade ahead of his time. Oh. Now, this event has caused Lee to commit to writing and drawing at least 20 issues of his new Divine Right project. Wizard keeps asking, though, if he would be drawing any other comics at Marvel or for his homage comics imprint, but Lee remains steadfast in his plans to only draw the one book. Unless, he says, Neil Gaiman agrees to write a book for him to draw that they've been discussing, which to my knowledge never happens. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine them getting along. That's, uh... You're from different worlds. He's he's some sort of waifish fairy, and I I don't mean that in a derogatory. Yes. I mean like a literal, actual fairy from a sprite, the if you will. Like you say his name backwards, and he will appear. <laughs> Whereas Jim Lee strikes me as a pretty practical dude. I imagine you could look up to Neil Gaiman, but Neil Gaiman would be like, "You didn't say my name backwards to summon me. I I, I can't work on this book." 
Now, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen gets its first mention in this issue. Yes, Alan Moore's, you know, critically acclaimed series, which becomes a critically maligned movie. And that he wants no part in, takes his name off all those movies. But I, I did think it was it was fascinating how like sometimes those little things, because there were a bunch of books mentioned around it you never heard of. But the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen sounds ridiculous when you read it in print and then you actually check it out. You're like, this is pretty cool. Like, I think that movie is why he decided to become that his meditative sex magician. <laughs> He's just like, you know what? If if this is what conventional work is going to get me, uh, I'm, I'm going to become a sex wizard. Why bother? This is what he did, though. This is what's amazing, Brockway, because he's a genius in more ways than one. At this time, he just basically said, where's all the money? Oh, these young kids starting their own comic company that have millions of dollars that are making millions more, they worship me. I'm mm. going to start writing books for them that are just like, bleh, except for this one book called Supreme that was pretty good. But then he just kept making money off of all these guys. He's writing for Todd McFarlane. He's writing for Rob Liefeld. He's writing for Jim Lee. Like, it's crazy the money they were throwing at him. So uh, all the nerds in their sunglasses looking at him being a being a weirdo sex wizard and just like, how do you do it? How do I how do I get to be him? I can't even grow a beard. <laughs> now, obviously, as you said, Lee isn't as fun to mock as Todd McFarlane or Frank Miller. There's not as much in the chamber there but what are your thoughts in general on his comics output did you pay attention to it at his zenith no but like i said i'm a bad fan like i for me to pay attention to somebody they basically have to be a sex wizard like i know <laughs> i know a lot about al moore and and grant morrison but uh, short of you starting to believe in magic well, that's when i set up and be like okay this is gonna be fun tell me about you but if you're just like i'm I, I want to work and be left alone. I, I, I even if I love the work, like I, I might like the work, but I couldn't tell you anything about him. I, he did. Uh, he did. God, what? What? What was he doing in the air? Was it Wild Storm? Wildcats. Yeah, Wild Storm Wild was his studio, and Wildcats was what, what got turned into a cartoon it. and toys and everything else. And that was the Gen. I know it's Gen Thirteen. That Gen Thirteen. That's yeah. it. That was his embarrassing one. You could mock that one. He had, <laughs> he had the guy. I don't remember anything about it except for the women were ridiculous. And there was a guy named Grunge, which even as a nerd in the 90s who was into Grunge, I was like, no, <laughs> no to that one. I have to cop to and I'm, you know, listeners of the show know that Gen 13 was one of my favorites at this time because I was literally 13 when it's coming out. So it's speaking directly to me. But yeah, it doesn't hold up. Uh, but it's it's great to look back as an artifact. Yeah, it's an artifact for sure. Now, I have been thinking about something that I wanted to propose to you, because what Jim Lee is most known for, and maybe you're aware of this, he still holds the all-time sales record for a single comic book issue, that X-Men number one. So originally, it was Todd McFarlane with Spider-Man number one, then it was Rob Liefeld, and then Jim Lee overtook them all. He sold like 8 million plus copies. Of a single issue. But Rob Liefeld placing second to him is actually more impressive in my mind because the X-Men was always Marvel's top-selling comic book anyway. And then they published multiple covers of that first issue to boost sales. Liefeld, meanwhile, he took New Mutants, which nobody cared about, this book that had just been forgotten. He completely revamped it. He put new characters in there. Cable, you know, for one, Deadpool, all them. Changed the title. And then with a single cover of his X-Force number one, he had the highest selling comic issue ever up to that point. So I'm just curious your thoughts. Agree, disagree. Yeah, Rob was harnessing that pure nuclear rage inside of him. The darkness, you could feel it bleed through. He powered, he powered up like a, like a super saiyan. Hair turned white and he wrote X-Force. 
<laughs> he was running on anger back then. He was always running on anger because he was not happy with how the, the editor at DC had treated him. So he jumped ship to Marvel and sold a million things for them. But here's the thing, Brockway. You also may not be aware of this. Since the beginning of this podcast, we have tallied every time Jim Lee has been mentioned, every time Todd McFarlane has been mentioned. Originally, it was Rob Liefeld. He called us some names, and so we dropped him and went back, and we, uh, you know, had a little bit of a changeover to Jim Lee. But here, in this issue... Jim Lee was mentioned six times, Todd McFarlane only three times, but that brings our running total to Jim Lee, 445 mentions, Todd McFarlane, 427. I feel like we talked about Todd McFarlane more than that on this podcast. Like we, <laughs> I think we beat 427 just this podcast. <laughs> there are certain guidelines we follow to garner a tally for your mention, but uh, that is something that, yeah. Well, we'll see. Todd used to be in the, in the lead. Will he ever get it back? Time will tell. Now, the last thing I just want to bring up here is, you know, you on your shows uh, spend a lot of time going through attempted comedy and self-help books with titles like A Thousand and One Ways To, but we are going to give you a break by asking you to review just 10 attempts at comedy in our final segment. This is Turok's Top 10. Man, this is a Sean Baby bit too. He punishes me all the time with it's just a constant attack of anti-humor. Yes. On my very soul. And now I, I have to field it on other podcasts to take this psychic brunt. So sorry. This is the top 10 scariest things to find in your bag after trick-or-treating in a superhero universe. Number 10, a jar full of something that came out of MODOK. There's got to be some discharge there. <laughs> Number nine, scabs that fall off Baron Zemo's head every time he takes off that damn Citizen V mask. I don't understand any part of this. Yeah, I'll just tell you quick. He was undercover as a hero at this time. He was a long-standing Captain America villain. Now he was pretending to be Citizen V, but either way, he wore a mask because he was horribly burned and scarred. Always always helps when you need a paragraph to understand. <laughs> That's right. I find, I find it hilarious now. <laughs> Obviously. Number eight, any DC Comics annual from the last eight years. That's probably a burn lost to time. <laughs> Uh, number seven, one of those gross tequila lollipops with a chewy Mr. Mind Center. I don't get it. I want to beat somebody up about it. <laughs> like just, just there's like a nerd impulse. I was a nerd and it still fills me up with that fury. I will spare you the explanation. Number six, Huck from Alpha Flight. Hey, I get that one. Hey, I get one. I he got would one. fit in a bag. Hey. He was a little bit small. That's a <laughs> fine joke. <laughs> Five, a fanboy with an overnight bag. This is a joke about finding bags in your bag? <laughs> Does that mean he, it's a fanboy that wants to sleep over at your house, I'm assuming? I think that I, I think this is a stalker reference, but why <laughs> would you be finding them? I don't understand. I don't even understand the basis of the logic. Number four, Jim Shooter's resume. Oh, hey <laughs> Classic Jim <laughs> Shooter humor. <laughs> Poor guy. Right Could not stay in a comic company to save his life. All right. Number three. Reach in your bag. Snap. Wizard copy editor. Mark Milkowski's handcuff to you. I don't get it. I don't get any of it. 
That was uh, some self-referential humor. Number two, an entire set of Marvel flashback comics. They were not big sellers, but I liked them. And number one, Uncle Ben. Hey! No, that's nothing. That's absolutely nothing. (laughs) Like what it I know I know who Uncle Ben is. I know what he's famous for. What what why is that scary to find him in a Halloween bag? I think we've come full circle from my joke at the, the top, and I didn't even intend that. You know, it, it would be the decomposing corpse of Uncle Ben in your bag. In a Halloween bag. Yeah. And that's a that's a joke. That's not only a joke, that's what you want to go out on. That's your punchline. That's the what's what you considered. <laughs> like we've long held that your number one spot is like that's the joke that you were like. This is so good. I have to do an entire list of these just to use that one. So uh, this Uncle Ben reference was so good to somebody that they were like, absolutely, I have to write this. Brockway, as someone who has read over 50 of these top 10 lists, I have to tell you that them going out on Uncle Ben, playing it safe, is something that we should sing the praises of the wizard staff for that because there are full lists we've had to skip because we would literally be, you know, chased with torches if we read any of their attempted comedy at that time. So bad. (laughs) 1997 nerd verse punchlines are, yeah, that's just, you could do an archaeological... discovery on on slurs you could you could find where they came from their rich history indeed well mr brockway i want to thank you so much for joining me for this uh you know michael never showed up maybe we'll get him on the mini episode guys i don't know where is he now <laughs> Both of us we thought we were a getting a surprise we yeah. were gonna come here with four people and we're the only two that wanted to do it <laughs> oh but i certainly appreciate all your insight and your thoughts Uh, But why don't you tell people where you're at on a a weekly basis? Well, I and uh, and Sean Baby of Sean Baby fame, uh, we have have our own site called 1900HotDog. It's not a phone number. It's a website. You can find us at 1900HotDog.com or support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash 1900HotDog. We're the last source of text and image comedy on the internet. That's it. Where nobody else is doing it. Uh, Everybody else is fired and we're hiring them all. I <laughs> uh, got a bunch of columnists from from Cracked and stuff still doing that and uh, doing it really well. And we've got a podcast called The Dog Zone 9000, where we do the exact same thing, but in audio form. Just explore cursed objects that should not have been and inflict them on people that frankly deserve better. But yeah, come listen to us. I can't recommend it high enough, guys. It's It's one of the few things in life that makes me laugh out loud, whether I'm reading or listening, the madness that you will encounter either on the podcast or by subscribing to their Patreon and getting extra doses of the, the written word. I, I will just say, you know, the day that I joined their Patreon, suddenly there is a whole uh, article about a morning news broadcast, Brockway wrote this, where the people... In the Mortal Kombat stage show, which I went to go see live at the Arrowhead Pond of Anaheim, were trotted out uh, to be harassed and uh, creeped out by the weatherman on this show. And physically attacked. Physically attacked (laughs) by the weather. The cast of Mortal Kombat live stage show were physically attacked by a horny weatherman. Nobody saw any part of that coming. What a disaster. What a glorious disaster. And that's what we do. We find glorious disasters and tell you all about them. Absolutely. But this was a lot of fun. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
I hope both of our co-hosts are still alive somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. And, uh, I did finally get a message from Michael, and he did say that his young daughter as well, screaming, will go. not calm down. So we were cursed on both ends. A blessing from the chaos gods. But you know what else is a gift from the gods? You are loyal listeners. Thanks so much, geeks, for tuning in for this episode. Of course, we want to stay in touch with you off the mic. That's right. So you can find us on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. Join our Facebook group, go on over to the YouTube page and check out our haul videos, check out our recent top 10 video where we went over the top 10 best Batman wizard covers, which was very fun. Get over there, subscribe. How about joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash wizards comics. Five bucks a month will get you a full scan of the issue. Ooh, that's exciting. But hey, how about the uncut, uncensored version of this particular episode and all the episodes to come released up to two weeks early to you. Plus you get a video version of the conversation and so much more. In fact, I will tell you there's a change coming on Patreon. You're going to get an even greater value for your $5. So just stay tuned. If you want to get over there now and uh, jump the gun, why not? Uh, But speaking of Patreon, we got to shout out our awesome patrons. So here it goes. You know, old McDonald had a farm, but Mark McDonald had a Patreon subscription and he got all the perks of Wizards the Patreon Guide to Comics. So good for him. Uh, Mickey and Jason over at the Retro Network just saying they're putting out awesome nostalgic content that you would definitely enjoy. In fact, if you like my brand of nonsense, I got a couple other projects over there like Rental Return. Yes, Tales from the Video Store where I interview former video rental store employees go to the history of that business. Or you You can see me checking out my various uh, thrift store finds and sharing them with you. Hey, what about Stephen Forshaw? Stephen Fantastic Forshaw, if you ask us. Lee Markowitz. Oh, Lee, he's getting excited for our upcoming superhero draft. Yes, we had a great time last year, and he'll be back around this time. How about Mitchell Hall? Mitchell, hallelujah. Yeah, you joined the Patreon. You're supporting the podcast. Denim Jedi, what more can I say? I'm glad you didn't go with Polyester Jedi. It just fits you so much better. Gabe Bustamantes. Oh, Gabe, Gabe, Gabe. You love those 90s comics. Mark Quill. Ooh, this is your time to shine, Mark. Don't you think? Get that quill, dip it in the ink. Sign a contract with the Chaos Gods. See what happens. Steve King. Oh, the king of our hearts. You can rule our kingdom anytime. Thanks for supporting the podcast there, Steve. Joe Marcello, Dollar Bin Bandits podcast, guys. They just interviewed Jim Shooter and Jeff Johns back to back. Check out their show. They're doing great work. Brian Acosta. Why can't we just call you BA? Do you have a little Mr. T energy? Seems like that would work out perfectly. Meltface Killer must know how to, you know, shred on a guitar. I always feel like that's what Jack Black is saying on Tenacious D, right? Like a face-melting riff. Uh, Greg Schuler, Lauren Schuler Donner? Wait a minute. Are you connected to the Donner family? The Donner party? Uh, we don't want to be on a, a long cross-country journey with you then. Jeremy Daw. Dawson! Please tell me that's how folks greeted you in the halls in high school. And finally, Fernando Pinto, you are the latest to join our happy crew, but certainly not the last. You're all invited and we'd love to have you over there. But hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded.
has been a presentation of the Retro Network.